Good evening and welcome. Uh, I'm Harold Scott. I'm the interim director of the Route 1 Center. And before I introduce our speaker, I just want to say a few words about Route 1, not the center, I promise. Um, mainly because someone, uh, I heard a few people come in inquiring about Route Bunch, and I was actually kind of surprised if uh, you know, people who really don't know much about him today. Uh, Ralph Bunch was a Howard faculty member in the 1930s and the 1940s, and uh, was recruited by the State Department because he was the leading African expert in the United States, and uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the State Department realized that the U.S. was going to be involved in the World War and that Africa would be uh, pivotal to their war effort. And so they needed someone in the government that actually knew something about Africa, and that's how he, he uh, arrived in government. Uh, he always intended to return to Howard, but never quite did because he was promoted uh, while he was in government. He ended up being one of the leading people who uh, 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 were responsible for the uh, development of the United Nations. It was at the famous San Francisco conference where the uh, UN charter was, was signed. Uh, he later ended up in the United Nations and was on the uh, diplomat, uh, diplomatic team uh, that was called upon to solve the first Arab-Israeli war. Uh, and when the lead diplomat was assassinated, uh, uh, Ralph Bunch, uh, just by a quirk of fate, managed not to be assassinated himself. He became a lead diplomat and was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for resolving the first Arab-Israeli conflict. He later became a full-time member of the United Nations. I don't know exactly what position, but I know a lot about what he did there, and uh, he he uh, is largely responsible for the United Nations thinking about how you decolonize Africa. He found this, the, the method for uh, how you move nations from colonial powers to the mid-ground and into the United Nations. And so that's who Dr. Ralph Fletch is. Okay, now on to our, our speaker tonight. Uh, Dr. Yoon Jung Park is currently a freelance researcher. She uh, is a senior research associate at the sociology department at Rhodes University and has just finished the visiting professorship in the African Studies Department at Howard. She also serves as the convener and coordinator of the Chinese African Americans in China Research Network and an international network of over 300 scholars, researchers, graduate students, journalists, filmmakers, and practitioners. She helped establish this organization in 2007. Dr. Park is the author of A Matter of Honor, Being Chinese in South Africa, and dozens of articles and book chapters in scholarly publications, including the Talmud Moderne, African Studies, African and Asian Studies, and the Journal of Chinese Overseas and African Studies Review. She's currently working on her next book on Chinese migrants in Africa. Our current research interests include Chinese in Southern Africa, perceptions of Chinese people by local communities, migration, race, ethnicity, and identity, race, class, and power dynamics, and Chinese South, uh, South uh, Africans. She has done work on issues of gender and gender-based violence in the US, South Africa, uh, and arts and culture. Dr. Park has a PhD from the University of Witzwana's Run in sociology 
an MA from the Fletcher School at Tufts University, and a BA from Pitzer College. Uh, Dr. Bark was born in Seoul, Korea, grew up in Los Angeles, has lived in Johannesburg and Nairobi. Uh, uh, she is fluent in English, Spanish, speaks Kitchen Korean, and smatterings of Rizali and uh, Izzy Zulu. Um, I'm going to read her title, and I have to say that when I read the title, I was, oh, I, I think you're going to get me in a little bit of trouble here, because every I time I see it. something in quotation marks, I think I'm about to say a racial slur. So <laughs> if I am, and anyone's insulted, it's all Dr. Park's fault. The uh, title is The Chinese, The Taiwanese, Hong Kong, and Labor in South Africa. Uh, let us welcome Dr. Park. Thank you so much. Um, thank you for, to my former colleagues in African Studies, the three of them here. They've put in an, a rather long day. Um, and I also wanted to thank Winslow Robertson, who um, has been the stalwart leader of the Sino-Africa DC group and um, the many volunteers that he's recruited to help out tonight. Um, this is the first event, lecture event of this group. And um, I'm honored to have been chosen to be the lead speaker. Um, I'm going to start this talk by speaking about my outfit, because this is a key part of one of the complaints about Chinese goods in Africa. One of these skirts, um, both of which I just recently purchased in South Africa, was made in South Africa, and the other one was made in China. Um, I, I, I could pass, walk around and have you touch and feel, but um, the point is they're very similar. I chose patterns that I happen to like. And I actually selected the first one because I really wanted to buy something African. Um, and there's a particular shop that sells this brand um, that is proudly South African. Um, I went online for Alcapolka, which is the South African brand. And they're very, very um, keen to get the point across that this is original South African design, um, printed in South Africa, and they say um, using South African fabric. Now, if I looked on the inside label, the fabric's actually imported. So the fabric itself, the base, base fabric, is probably also made in China. This skirt cost about 550 rand, which um, the exchange rate um, was about 10 to 1, so about $55. This skirt, which I found a few days later, very, very similar, 150 Rand, or about $15. Very similar, right? But all made in China, OK? This is one of the problems with textiles and garments um, being sold in Africa, that no one can compete, in part because of the cost of labor, um, but with China-made products. Um, and some of the South African companies and manufacturers are getting very, um, are, are using kind of terms like counterfeit um, to try to sell proudly made in South Africa. Um, and this is one of the big marketing um, gimmicks of um, COSATU, which is the major uh, labor union organization in South Africa, um, and some of the manufacturers now. So they're trying to get people to spend five to six to sometimes 10 times more for almost identical quality in order to be proudly South African, okay? So this is one of the problems that I want to go into with this talk, okay? okay. So 
My work in South Africa um, has, um, looking at Chinese migrants has covered almost a dozen years. I started out looking at Chinese South Africans or South African-born Chinese, second, third, fourth generation. That's what I started my um, PhD research on. As I was finishing, it was very clear that Chinese, uh, China and South Africa were deepening their engagement, that there were a lot more and new Chinese migrants arriving in the country, and it seemed like a natural segue to start looking at Chinese migrants. So the focus of my work primarily is the Chinese migrants and African perceptions, particularly in South Africa, but in the Southern African region of the new Chinese migrants. In the process of doing this research, um, one obviously reads a lot of media coverage, and a lot of the headlines are quite negative. Um, and when we talk about Chinese people or Chinese goods entering Africa, um, they often use words like deluge, uh, flood, surge, and, and my favorite was the textile tsunami. Um, the quality of Chinese-made goods is also often denigrated. Um, and Fong Kong, which I put in quotations, is actually a completely made-up word, okay? Um, it's actually been used in a South African rap song. Um, it's now become so popular that um, South African um, marketing firms and publicity campaigns use Fong Kong, often in a negative way, you know, to sell their products that they say, not Fong Kong, the real Mokoya, things like that. Um, so Hong Kong basically is, is kind of derived from Hong Kong, um, but basically just means fake, okay, or cheap, or copy, or imitation. So basically, this versus this. But for most people, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference, right? And why would you pay $55 when you can get it for $15? Um, there are accusations that go along with the criticism of Chinese goods. Um, and one of the most serious ones is that these cheap Chinese imports that are, and, and, and the allegation is that they're being brought in by these Chinese, Chinese people, Chinese businesses, or the Chinese state, right? They often talk about dumping cheap things that no one in China wants on these poor Africans, right? So there are accusations that these imports are causing Africa's deindustrialization. And in addition to this very, very serious accusation, there are often um, all kinds of labor problems that are um, associated with any time there are Chinese textile factories, either in South Africa or in Africa or in China. Um, to the best stories related to China-made goods um, that made headlines in South Africa. The first one um, took place in 2005. Um, Kosatu um, had organized a protest, and they were basically calling for the government of South Africa to stop this flood of cheap Chinese products into the country because it was destroying the manufacturing industry. Okay? And as they were marching, they realized that all of the T-shirts that they were wearing were all made in China. <laughs> Somebody pointed it out, and, and a few of the guys made a big show of taking off their T-shirts and burning them in a, in a big bonfire. Um, the second happened more recently. Um, one of the last events that I got to participate in before we left South Africa and moved back to the U.S. was the um, FIFA World Cup in two, 2010. And right around then, there were all kinds of headlines about Zukumi, the cute little mascot, and all of the FIFA World Cup paraphernalia. 
um, that was being sold on the streets. Now, one of the things supposedly that uh, South Africans were going to get benefit from um, hosting FIFA would be that these kinds of products would be made in South Africa and produce jobs and, and kind of stimulate the economy. Well, it turns out that there was this flood of stuff, cheap stuff, and it was all being made in China, and it was being made in Chinese sweatshops by children. I mean, horrible, horrible conditions, and, and this is the kind of story that made headlines. Um, and, and this is, again, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to try to tackle this um, very preliminary paper and just put some thoughts out there and try to um, unravel and unpack. Um, so what I'm going to do over the next 20 minutes or so, I'll try not to take much longer than that, is try to unravel some of these threads. We often talk about unpacking um, the story, but I'm unraveling threads since we're talking about garments, okay? So um, what are we talking about? It's very complicated, right? You're talking about China and Taiwan, South Africa, but also other African countries that are involved in textile manufacturing. Um, the West or the North, depending on your perspective, um, and as well as other African countries, okay? In terms of government actors, um, particularly in South Africa, we're talking about the Department of Foreign Affairs, Department of Trade and Industry, Department of Labor, um, the South African Revenue Service, Customs and Duties People, and the Reserve Bank. Um, other actors in the country include labor unions. Um, SOCTU is the South African Clothing and Textile Workers Union, so that's the main union that is involved in, in these kinds of disputes. But we're also talking about the retailers, um, textile and garment factories, and, and this is South African as well as China, Taiwanese and Chinese-owned um, workers and the media. And then there's this kind of international alphabet soup of, of trade um, acronyms, right? The World Trade Organization, AGOA, the MFA, and I'll go into some of these um, in greater detail. Okay, so the first thread, and this is just to kind of set the, the um, kind of broader um, context, right? One of the biggest issues that America typically has with China is, is, is about markets. And, and actually what the U.S. has been doing to Africa for, for years and years and years, right, is saying you need to, you know, liberalize, you need to open up your markets, it's about trade, and it's about free trade, and, you know, so they're constantly pushing for free markets and trade. China joins the World Trade Organization in 2001 and proceeds very rapidly to flex her manufacturing muscle, right? Um, in 2005, the World Trade Organization ended the multi-fiber agreement. And the MFA, without going into too much detail, had basically protected Western markets um, from the big players like China and India, right? From, from flooding their markets. And it, and kind of as a side effect, they um, helped out some of the smaller producers like those in African countries for a while. So the MFA ended and suddenly China and Africa could kind of send their stuff everywhere. The West, in response, um, implemented protections, quotas, um, and other restrictions to protect their own manufacturing industries. But most African countries didn't have the kind of um, capacity to do this quickly enough, right? 
And China, in the midst of all of this, is basically arguing that, look, you guys are talking about free trade. Like, why are we being penalized for being more competitive than everybody else? Right? So that's the first thread. Thread two. Um, most of you have probably heard of AGOA. This is the African Growth and Opportunity Act. Um, and it's the, a piece of US legislation. Um, basically, AGOA provides duty-free and quota-free treatment to, into the US for eligible apparel articles. It was passed in 2000. It was extended um, recently to 2015. Um, 35 to 40 sub-Saharan African countries are eligible in any given year, and um, they have to meet certain criteria. Um, they're supposed to um, demonstrate that they have sufficiently democratic practices, that there is regular enforcement of laws, visas, and whatnot, um, and, and, and kind of regulations related to market conditions. And in any given year, one or two countries might fall off, and a couple other countries might be added onto the list. But generally, there are about 35 to 40 sub-Saharan African countries who are eligible to basically uh, sell their goods in the US free of duties um, and, and um, quotas. Okay? Without AGOA, most African countries would not be competitive. They wouldn't be able to get their goods into the US and sell at a reasonable price. Um, one of the ironies, and I'm going to kind of put put out there a few of these ironies and, and questions for you, is that AGOA doesn't consider the ownership of the factories at all. So um, as long as the products are made in Africa, a Taiwanese or an Israeli, for that matter, a French company that is based in South Africa can also sell their goods into the US under the AGOA Act. Okay. Thread three, okay? Um, one China or two. Um, one of the um, biggest tensions um, for, for China followers um, is, is, is kind of looking at, um, th this is one of the, the issues that you don't talk to most Chinese officials about, right, is, is Taiwan, because there's only one China as far as they're concerned. And, um, Everyone's constantly talking about China and Africa and the fact that China doesn't um, put any conditionalities on their loans or their investments and things. But the, actually, the one condition that's always put on there is that you only recognize us, right? There's only one China, which means they have to cut ties with Taiwan. Um, and this is a, a, a one of the main kind of political goals of China's um, uh, expansion, if you will, into Africa. They want every single African country to recognize only them. So on the one hand, there's this kind of official level of competition um, for, um, and in South Africa, it played out with the Chinese South African community that I studied for such a long time, where you, know, you had both the Taiwanese and the Chinese kind of vying for the hearts and minds of these overseas Chinese, even though there were only you know, a few handfuls of them um, in the country. It was important. Um, in principle, that every Chinese person kind of affiliate themselves with the true homeland, right? What's interesting is what's interesting is that in South Africa, the way this plays out, um, and probably elsewhere, um, is that there are all these signs of cooperation 
at the official state to state level, the Chinese and Taiwanese don't speak to each other, they don't cooperate, but we've seen over the years Taiwanese firms kind of establish some factories in, in South China. Um, the very earliest um, clothing factories that were set up in South Africa were set up by the Taiwanese, and they were invited into South Africa um, during the apartheid um, era by the apartheid regime. Um, for political reasons. I mean, the, the apartheid government was trying to keep black people out of the cities. One of the ways to do that is to create more jobs in and around the homelands that they had already set up for the blacks. And so they invited the Taiwanese to invest and create jobs in manufacturing, specifically in textiles and garments, to um, produce jobs and, and keep blacks in the homelands. Taiwanese um, at that stage were um, kind of much more advanced um, in terms of development than the Chinese. It was cheaper to hire Chinese managers from the mainland than it was to bring Taiwanese managers in. So that was one of the um, interesting kind of first signs of cooperation is that those Taiwanese factories as and when they set up brought a handful of Chinese from the mainland with them to work in their factories as the supervisors, as the managers. And that actually started one of the first kind of um, chains of migration from the PRC into South Africa and into Lesotho. Um, the other thing is that once these um, incentive schemes that have been offered by the South African government expired, um, and once South Africa recognized the PRC, um, and de-recognized Taiwan, a lot of the Taiwanese left. They left South Africa and they left for good. Um, at one stage there were as many as 30,000 Taiwanese nationals in South Africa. Many of them were able to take South African citizenship because the both countries allowed that to take place and it was much easier to do business in the country if you had South African citizenship. Um, so at one stage there were as many as 30,000 today they're probably fewer than six, okay? So all of those factories that, that the Taiwanese had operated shut down. When they shut down, some of them sold um, their businesses or certainly some of the equipment that they had to their Chinese managers. So a lot of the Chinese who got into this business, these businesses of, of, of manufacturing clothing and textiles, actually had started out as managers for the Taiwanese firms. So today, you have a very mixed um, kind of ownership. There are a few areas where um, Taiwanese and Chinese uh, manufacturing um, factories are located. Um, one of them is in KwaZulu-Natal in an area called Newcastle. And there's so many Chinese there. They've got signage, street signs in Chinese. Um, and um, where it used to be mostly Taiwanese, I think the numbers are starting to shift and you have more um, people from mainland China now. <coughs> Excuse me. Is there any way I could get some water? Okay. Thread four, okay. Fong Kong, um, goods being dumped in Africa, okay. As I mentioned um, earlier, there are all kinds of complaints that um, Chinese are dumping um, their kind of excess goods and unwanted goods onto African markets. In fact, these days, 
South African retailers, the big ones, uh, Woolworths, Edgar's, Stutterfers, these are the big department stores and big retail chains that sell kind of fashion clothing. They are the largest importers of Chinese-made clothing into South Africa. Okay? In other African countries, you have Africans um, who are involved. And, and these days, it's, it's much more Africans bringing Chinese-made goods into Africa than Chinese bringing goods in. Um, so in places like um, Guangzhou, and a lot of my colleagues, um, my counterparts who look at Africans in China, focus all their research on these growing numbers of Africans who are either basing themselves in Guangzhou or traveling regularly back and forth to China to basically load up. And you've got you know, a huge range in terms of scale of, of, of women who are going um, on shopping junkets and will come home with two or three bags. And they'll basically then have trunk sales um, out of their homes and make some extra pocket money to um, Nigerian businessmen who, um, on a monthly basis, ship containers full of not just clothing, but cell phone parts, auto parts, um, construction materials back to Nigeria um, to be sold by um, their, their counterparts, businesses that they've set up, um, family members on the other side. So, a lot of the complaints are about China and Chinese people dumping these goods. But in fact, most of the goods that are being produced in China and, and, and imported to Africa is being done by Africans. The one last point I wanted to make is that um, in South Africa and also in most other major cities across the continent, you have these Chinese wholesale distribution centers where the Chinese people will get their um, products and sell in either little shops or more like stalls. And while they're selling um, China-made goods, they're also creating um, jobs, essentially, and, and kind of livelihoods for people who are otherwise unemployed. There's this multiplier effect um, from the wholesalers. Um, because a lot more people, whether they're street hawkers or operating their own small shops, go and buy at these wholesale distribution centers um, and then um, resell um, their uh, products there. So it's not all bad, is um, I guess my argument. Okay. Um, so the, the other thing about Fong Kong, I mean, in South Africa, everyone um, is using this term now to refer to anything that's cheap or fake. Um, they talked about even Fong Kong soccer teams. It wasn't a legitimate soccer team. It was Fong Kong. Um, the thing one must remember is that there's a huge range of goods that are manufactured in China and sold in Africa and in the US. Um, so you do have these Chinese shops in um, small towns scattered throughout Africa that sell to the poorest shoppers in Africa. Um, and you know, most of those shops look the same. They hang their clothing up outside their doors. Um, you'll, you, you can kind of pick one out. In fact, one of the um, research projects that I did, um, I, I 
uh, used what I called the road trip methodology. It basically kind of mapped out small towns in rural free state and we went from town to town and inevitably along the main road you could just identify from the street where the china shops were and and you know most times we were correct and there were two chinese a young chinese couple sitting um in the shop and they slept you know at the back of the shop or at the side of the shop sometimes just behind a curtain um living very modestly and selling these um very very inexpensive goods always consumer goods so things like underwear clothing um children's toys um and things like that um and some of it yes very poor quality right but this is what that market can afford so that's part of it i did interviews with a couple of these chinese um people and they said um the one person i spoke to in zimbabwe actually said to me she said you know i tried to bring in higher quality goods but no one could afford them and they they asked me for the 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 other stuff you know so they're basic goods basic necessities that people need um and that are you know perhaps not meant to last very long um i heard a great story at some other presentation where um african woman said um she she talked about the shoes that she bought and she said these chinese made shoes are going to take me to church and i will take them home <laughs> because they will be broken by the time she's coming back um so inevitably some of the quality of some of the products is very poor is low but it's what the market that segment of the market can afford to buy um and most of them if you speak to most africans are actually happy for the opportunity to buy t-shirts you know to be able to send their kids to school with shoes to be able to buy that washcloth um in zimbabwe um during the worst of their crisis there was um it was impossible to find anything to buy their shops were empty so you would go into grocery stores and there were kind of scattered rolls of toilet paper um and 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 they tried to kind of make it look like the store was full they would put one roll here and another one halfway through the aisle and things um during that period there were all kinds of chinese not from china but from the region who realized that if they could get products in to zimbabwe they could actually make some money and they were the the quickest to kind of respond to this crisis and they were able to get things like it wasn't dove soap it was doe soap <laughs> but it was soap and you know quality was decent it was good enough washcloths and things and when we interviewed some of the zimbabwean women there they said they were grateful to the chinese you know they were the chinese were the only ones who somehow managed to get across the borders get the goods on the shelves so that they could send their kids off to their boarding schools with a clean washcloth, a set of clothes, a pair of shoes, um, you know, and a bar of doe soap. It was, you know, not great, but it was the only thing that was available at the time. Um while you have the low end of the market, the middle, so all of these South African retailers, the Woolworths, the Edgars, they also buy predominantly from china so everything you buy at a department store in south africa is also made in china and then at the highest end you know if you go to the 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 big 
um, retail shopping malls in Santon or in Cape Town, um, a lot of those high fashion kind of brand name um, shops, if you look, all of that stuff is also made in China. But regardless of this wide range, there's a kind of level of denigration of everything that's made in China. And there's this kind of assumption that it's all cheap and that and, and in some countries in Africa, it's actually come to um, impact the Chinese people as well, that they're also seen as kind of cheap and, and substandard in some ways. Um, and one of the things is that I find fascinating about South Africa, um, having lived there for nearly 12, 13 years of my life, is um, what people with very little money spend it on. Like if you have, uh, if, if you don't have a regular job, but you have a little bit of money. Um, in South Africa, people will spend it on their cell phones, got buying airtime. Women will spend it on getting their hair done. <laughs> I think it's, it's I've, I've heard that it's pretty common for of, of, of many African women, <laughs> certainly in West Africa as well. Um, but if given the choice of going to a China shop and the, um, the retail um, chain, a lot of black South Africans who don't have money will go to the more expensive shop because it's about image. It's about wanting to be middle class, wanting to project a certain image of themselves and, and saying that they don't have to shop in the China store, right? They don't have to buy Fong Kong. So they would rather spend 550 rand instead of 150, right? Because this is not Fong Kong, right? And you don't want Fong Kong. Um, so it, 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 there, there's some really interesting potential studies in this. Okay. Thread five, okay. Um, one of the biggest um, accusations, like I said, is that um, these cheap imports are creating job losses. They're making these factories shut down because they can't compete. Um, it's causing deindustrialization. Well, again, having lived in South Africa for such a long time, <laughs> that there were industrialization, that there would be an industrial policy. I mean, it would be great if there were such things, but in most cases, in most African countries, there aren't. Um, and um, most of the industry experts, including the um, head um, researcher at Kasatu, who I interviewed, agreed that in the case of South Africa, um, with regard to the manufacturing, the, the textile and garment manufacturing industry, it isn't the Chinese that you have to blame. It was the lack of trade tariffs and protections at the end of the multi-fiber agreement. It had to do with currency fluctuations, and during that particular period, the RAND was all over the place, which um, made it difficult to kind of expand your and grow your business or invest. It had to do with um, high wages, which the labor unions are always arguing for, um, but low productivity. Um, there's a general lack of industry competitiveness, which they readily admit. Um, and um, I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit more in the next slide, but they're also um, the cost of illegal imports where the, the government's not benefiting from duties and customs. 
I guess one of the questions I have to just put out there is, is it possible for anyone in Africa to compete with China when it comes to manufacturing textiles? Is it possible um, without, without engaging in a race to the bottom with regard to, to labor costs, right? Which is what a lot of, of um, other Southeast Asian countries are doing. So the only countries that have been able to compete, um, but certainly not at the scale, but you know, certainly producing and exporting are countries like Vietnam, Cambodia, Bangladesh, um, Malaysia, you know, a handful of others. But the only way they can do that is they, if they keep their labor costs down. And is that something that we want to say we're proudly doing in South Africa? Question. Okay. So we wanted to talk about this one incident um, in South Africa. So between January 2007 and December of 2008, so for two full calendar years, um, as a result of pressure from the unions, South Africa and China actually negotiated a set of quotas on um, particular items of clothing and textiles. And they had a list, I think, of about 50 odd um, items, including men's sweatsuits and um, you know, women's dresses, shoes, whatnot. The goal was essentially, well, ostensibly, to give industry, South African industry, time to improve their competitiveness. And during this time, DTI, the Department of Trade and Industry, was supposed to invest and, and help stimulate kind of um, improvements within, within the sector. What actually happened? Um, the retail importers, so Woolworths, Stutterfords, Edgars, all of those companies, compensated for the quotas by stocking up on, at the end of 2006, knowing that the quotas were going to be instituted in January of 2007, they, they purchased all of this stuff um, and then during the two years of the quota, instead of going to South African suppliers or potential suppliers and working with them, they actually went to other low-end ex um, exporters. So they went to Bangladesh, Mauritius, Malaysia, and Vietnam, a um, couple other countries, to basically fill up their stores. Um, and there are a couple good studies where you can actually see um, kind of on graphs where they s purchases from China and from all of these other countries. During this period, instead of creating more jobs in the industry in South Africa, there was a further drop in employment. Um, there was increased illegal activity at the ports with under-invoicing um, and things, and there was no marked improvement. In fact, one of the reports I read um, said that China, the government, had actually given DTI money to, um, for capacity building. And no one knows what happened to that money. It's gone, but it was certainly never used for any kind of training. Okay. Sad. Um, okay, almost done. Thread six. Um, okay, so there are two major complaints in South Africa, in um, Africa, when it comes to China with regard to labor. Okay, the first is those Chinese when they come in, they bring all their own workers, right? I mean, this is one that we've all heard, is that the Chinese are coming in, they're bringing all their own workers. When we have such high unemployment, how could they possibly legitimize this? 
how can our government let them do that, right? This is one of the big complaints. Um, I'm not gonna go into all of that right now, perhaps in the Q&A we can. The other major complaint is when the Chinese companies come in and they create jobs, they are the worst employers. In fact, um, the Human Rights, Human Rights Watch put out a report looking at um, uh, mines in Zambia and basically came to the conclusion, some of my colleagues say unfairly, unjustly, but basically the, to the conclusion that the Chinese are the worst, right, when it comes to employment. The African Labor Research Network, which is a network of different labor unions across Africa, also did um, some studies of Chinese investments into their countries and um, I think they looked at nearly a dozen different African countries, but they detailed all the kinds of complaints um, when they went to Chinese um, firms and Chinese companies, um, and almost all of them had to do with labor issues, right? They're just Chinese across the board um, were not abiding by laws, that they were low, the lowest paying, often the longest hours, there were generally poor working conditions, um, on construction sites, they weren't providing safety equipment or, or um, kind of uh, uniforms, um, that there were problems with hygiene, that there was a complete lack of job security, there was a lot of casual hires, or um, they, in, in one instance, they, um, a company that we talked to, construction company in Namibia, said that um, they weren't paying minimum wage to this set of people because they weren't, they weren't employees, they were trainees, right? So that's how they got around some of those minimum wage um, regulations. And that generally that there's a lack of capacity building, right? So there are all of these complaints about labor in Africa. A lot of them are true, unfortunately. Um, and and the kind of the next two points aren't to justify those kinds of behaviors, but um, a lot of African critics of, of these kinds of practices look at this and, and they think the Chinese are being racist. You know, they're targeting us and they're treating Africans badly. Um, in fact, all of these kinds of conditions for anyone who works on China knows exist in China. Um, so across the board, you know, they're not great about labor. And at the end of the day, when there's a Chinese firm, if it's a foreign company working in Africa, then isn't it the job of the African government um, to implement laws with regard to labor, with regard to environment, um, you know, taxes, or anything else? Um, that if a, a foreign entity is investing in your, in your country, it's your job to make sure that they apply, uh, abide by the laws of that country. And oftentimes what it comes down to is our issues of governance in Africa, unfortunately, um, and, and issues of capacity, um, lack of resources in many cases. Um, I know in um, Zambia, in the coal mining sector, um, a lot of the um, problems there have to do with the fact that you know there are some regulations, there are um, kind of laws that are in place, but the the government does not have the resources to send out people to monitor um, and to enforce the laws that exist on the books. And so, a lot of these companies, um, you know, foreign 
and local are getting away with murder when it comes to labor practices. Okay. One of the big questions in South Africa um, that keeps coming up, and I'm not sure that this is a fair question to ask even, but um, it has been asked. Do you settle for low paying jobs or, or no jobs at all? Okay. Um, Kosatu has engaged with many of these Chinese textile factories about minimum wage regulations. Okay? Um, and there have been huge job losses in the textile and garment industry over the years, in part, you know, starting from the period of the, um, when the MFA expired. Um, and some argue that um, the losses are as high as 300,000 in South Africa alone. Um, in one town in the Eastern Cape, they lost 6,000 jobs in one year. Um, there were 55 factory cl closures in Bachabella, which is just outside Bloemfontein in, in the Free State. Um, and in 2010-2011, there was a, a lot of turmoil in Newcastle, which is where a lot of these um, garment and textile factories are headquartered. Um, and they threatened further losses. And it was interesting because um, Kasatu went after some of these small factories and tried to find them for cumulative years of, of kind of underpaying their, their, um, their workers. And basically what the guys, you know, the factory owners came back and said, look, if we can't afford to pay this, if we pay this, if we have to pay minimum wage, we'll go out of business. We can't stay open um, and, and, and continue to provide these jobs. Um, and they actually negotiated a settlement um, in, in Newcastle um, so that for, I can't remember exactly how many years, but for X period, and it might be two or three years, that they um, will be permitted to pay 30% below minimum wage, um, in, in part um, kind of out of acknowledgement of their specific circumstances. Get the next slide. Um, I just included a few images here. Most of these photos were taken in one textile factory in Lesotho, in Maseru. Um, you can just go through them, but it's in Lesotho, um, the textile um, industry, which is owned by the Taiwanese still, um, is the second largest job provider in the country. The first is government. Um, under the, the, the circumstances, I mean, the last um, several years have been really tough. Um, in most of those factories in, in Maseru produce for the Gap. And when Americans aren't buying as much from the Gap, people there lose their jobs. I mean, that's how connected we are. You know, you didn't go buy 10 shirts at the Gap when they were having their sale. There was a woman who lost her job. Um, so both South African as well as foreign textile factories have been closing down by the dozens over the last few years, and there have been lots of jobs lost. Um, many of the job losses come from um, small, um, I don't know how many of you know the textile industry, but um, when the Taiwanese were involved in South Africa, they made, they had textile factories. So these were big factories that were producing um, fabrics. They were actually dying, um, dying threads, and it was kind of a huge production chain up and down. 
Today, a lot of the Chinese-owned factories are much smaller, and in some ways, they would be much more akin to some of these um, um, piecework operations that you see amongst immigrant women in the US. They're doing cut, make, and trim, which is basically the lowest end of the textile market, um, where they're basically kind of bringing in pieces that are already kind of cut, right? Or, or big sheets of fabric, where they basically cut and then stitch together you know, the two sides, um, jeans and things like that. And all the factories are arguing that they can't afford to pay the minimum wage. Um, the wages in South Africa are negotiated by a bargaining council. And the bargaining council is populated by the biggest factory owners who obviously operate on a very different scale. And what I learned recently when I was giving this paper in, um, in Johannesburg, uh, about six weeks, about a month ago, um, was that in order to be part of the bargaining council, you have to be part of the party. You have to be an ANC member to be part of the bargaining council. Go figure. Um, so there's no Chinese representation, there's no Taiwanese representation on any of these bargaining councils where they actually sit and discuss what we can afford to pay, you know, what's a living wage, um, you know, what's the minimum and maximum that you can go in terms of, of wages and things like that. There's no representation of any of the Chinese or Taiwanese factories on this bargaining council. Um, and so, but, but if you're in the industry, the bargaining council gets to decide what the minimum wage is for everybody across the board. And again, I end this slide with a question. You know, should there be different wage standards for different types of factories? Um, do you base it on the size of the company, how long they've been in the country, profits, numbers of employees? Um, I mean, these are questions that should be con considered by somebody on the bargaining council, certainly. Um, it's, these, these discussions have created some really strange bedfellows. Um, a lot of the workers at these factories who work under less than ideal circumstances have actually come out criticizing COSATU for taking a hard line on minimum wages. Um, they've actually come to the defense of some of their employers. Um, one of the um, employees basically said, Look, of course I want more. I want a whole loaf of bread instead of the half I'm getting. But half a loaf is better than nothing, right? Um, all of these lost jobs are not being replaced. There's a huge problem with unemployment in South Africa. And the government's not doing enough to provide incentive to locals to create these jobs. So foreign companies are willing to come in and, and take all these risks. And certainly, there should be kind of better negotiating um, and, uh, you know, and, and it's possible. In Lesotho, there were huge problems within the sector um, a, 10 years ago, um, and they actually have a commission now made up of um, the industry owners, government, and labor. And they work together, and anytime they're, they meet regularly, I think once a quarter, um, and they discuss all of these issues, and, and they basically, things in Lesotho, um, again, wages are very low, and jobs have been lost, but there have been very few problems in Lesotho when it comes to 
um, kind of maintaining um, uh, certainly a standard of, of labor practice um, in those factories. All of the jobs that are lost aren't necessarily leaving Africa. They're just leaving South Africa. Um, they're going to Lesotho, they're going to Mauritius, and they're going to Kenya, amongst a number of other places. South Africa really desperately needs to create jobs. Um, the official unemployment rate is, has been about 25%, um, and that's 25.6 is from the second quarter of this year. Um, but it's ranged between 20 and 30%. This is the official unemployment rate. Unofficially, the real rate is probably closer to 40 or 50%. And in some places, like Batshabelo, um, like Dimbaza, um, it's actually much higher, right? South Africa has in the past implemented these incentive schemes to try to attract uh, foreign investors to create um, manufacturing jobs, to create jobs in the country, and certainly they did this during apartheid, and that's how the Taiwanese ended up in South Africa in the first place, right? Um, they're not doing anything like that now. Or it certainly doesn't seem like it. I did hear that they're, um, they've negotiated a big um, auto assembly plant in um, Port Elizabeth, um, and hopefully that's going to come online sometime later this year and should create, if I recall, about 2,000 jobs. But in a country where unemployment is that high, the government should certainly be doing more. Um, one of the ironies is that the Taiwanese were lured to South Africa during apartheid by these generous incentive schemes, and now their successors are basically being chased out and forced because of these minimum wage requirements um, by the labor unions. One, I, as I was doing this, I just wanted to kind of get all of my points across, and I was trying to figure out, what do I, what do I want to argue? Um, and I think one of the things that, um, having looked at and now taught a co uh, courses on China and Africa um, for the last couple years, um, is that a lot of the media coverage on China and Africa makes it out to be quite simplistic, you know, and and there are always these kind of binary kind of concoctions, you know, is China a collaborator or a competitor? You know, it has to be one or the other. And I guess one of the things that I want to argue with this case of textiles and factories and labor is that these engagements are incredibly complex. Okay? And in each sector, and each sector in each country really has its own set of histories, its own set of actors, and its own dynamics. Um, and these impact the way things play out. Um, there's a desire oftentimes to make these causal arguments as well. Well, Chinese imports are causing Africa's deindustrialization. Well, not really. I mean, it's not that simple, is it? I mean, I hope I've, I've shown that. Um, or that cheap Chinese imports result in or cause job losses in Africa. It's not, very, it's not that simple. Um, and it's important to unpack these kinds of arguments, um, or in this case, to unravel all of the threads. Um, and I wanted to end um, with um, kind of, this is the last slide, um, by going back to some of the work that I do. Um, so I work on Chinese migrants and um, try to figure out you know, who they are, why they're 
why they're going to South Africa, what they're doing, how their lives are. Um, but I've also been looking, um, in part because I don't speak Chinese and um, I'm no longer based in China, um, but um, I've also been looking at African perceptions of Chinese um, and of China. And um, one of the things that I found surprising is that with all of this negative stuff that I've, I've shared with you, and Fong Kong and, and labor issues and, and whatnot, there's actually no really strong anti-Chinese sentiments coming out of South Africa. Um, South Africans in general tend to be quite broad-minded um, and quite, um, quite intelligent, um, quite well-read about the various kind of issues that, that are, are going around. Um, and there are some possible factors, and um, I kind of elaborate on some of these things, looking at the differences between China and, and Lesotho, sorry, South Africa and Lesotho, um, in a paper that was recently published in African Studies Review. But some of the possible factors about why the, China, the South Africans are generally kind of easygoing about the Chinese is that there's a history of Chinese in the country. So there, there's a long history of Chinese South Africans um, who've been there, as I said, they're third and fourth generation now. And these um, people have been shopkeepers, often living in or near townships and serving um, the black South African population. Um, Fafi, I don't know how many of you would know what that. It's, a, it's basically like numbers running. It's an, it's an illegal form of gambling. But um, historically, the Chinese have been running these games of Fafi to make extra money um, on the side. And most of the grocery store owners and the shopkeepers also ran a Fafi game. And most South Africans, most black South Africans, um, would on a regular basis put down small bets based on these numbers. And so they very familiar, again, on a daily basis of, of encounters with the um, kind of Fafi man, <clears throat> if you will. Um, I think South Africans and most Africans, um, you know, again, this is contested, but I think most Africans are, are fairly positive about um, China's arrival in, in Africa. They like having an alternative to um, all the Western players. It's a good foil for them, um, especially for government. Um, China doesn't come with all of, all of the baggage of the colonial countries, or certainly America. Um, and you know, I think for the most part, people, um, many Africans certainly, again, in government amongst the elite, um, have a lot of admiration and respect for China and what China has been able to accomplish in terms of, of her own development, and look to China as a potential um, example, you know, as a potential path for their own development. Um, I think certainly the importance of China in terms of trade, investment, um, and support, as well as kind of political friendship, plays a role. And most South Africans are, are pretty au fait and, and aware of, of all of this. And, and the left in South Africa, um, Kosatu, on the one hand, is very critical of all of these Chinese goods coming into the country. But the South African Communist Party and the ANC um, has a very ambivalent relationship with China. Um, during the Cold War and the Sino-Soviet split, um, the ANC kind of leaned Soviet. 
but there were members of within the ANC who maintained um, strong ties with China and um, the Communist Party and the PAC always maintained their connections um, with China as well. And so there's a kind of an ambivalence, you know, they were our comrades, right? So now how do we look at them? And I think that kind of ambivalence plays in China's favor um, in the case of, of South Africa. So um, again, where one might expect some pretty harsh criticism, some, some um, serious anti-Chinese sentiment, um, in South Africa, you don't get that. You get these occasional flare-ups um, in response to incidents. So if there's a, an incident where um, a number of black South African um, workers at a textile factory are mistreated or something happens, then you'll have kind of a flare-up um, and media responses. But it usually dies down. And it hasn't resulted in kind of a sustained anti-China or anti-Chinese view in that country. So. I'll, I'll leave it at that, and I'm happy to take questions. Gentlemen, uh -huh. back. Can, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Thanks uh, for coming. I'm delighted to be here. Um, one of the things that is clear from your presentation is that the South African government would be justly uh, served by increasing tariffs and things like that on Chinese products. But there doesn't seem to be any move to do that. So uh, let's sort of get to the essence of the issue. Uh, how much, what role does bribery play in, in oiling the movement of, South, of Chinese goods into South Africa? I, I, my guess is there's a, a fair amount of, of corruption um, in, in all directions. Um, but I'm not sure. I mean, I don't think it started out that way. And I actually think during this, the two years of the quota system, that's when you actually started seeing a lot more kind of bribery and, um, and under-invoicing and things like that. I mean, I think... I think the South African manufacturers and certainly the South African government was unprepared, completely unprepared for this kind of deluge, and it really was, of, of, of Chinese products into the market. And if anything, I would expect, I would suspect that there are people that are high, there are people who work at the South African retailers who are engaged in, in, in this kind of bribery. So it, it, it may not involve a, a single Chinese person, um, which is interesting, right? But it's, it, it, I, I, I would guess that there is. Um, that's the kind of thing that really should be examined further. I'm not sure um, kind of who would, would do that. Um, and there have been some good reports and studies that have looked at you know, impacts of job losses, um, you know, the cheap Chinese imports and, and looked specifically at this two years of the quota um, to see what's happened. But certainly there's corruption um, you know, across the board, not just in clothing and textiles. Um, 
one of the things that um, I found interesting is that um, doing research amongst the Chinese migrants, and I'm kind of going through and mining a lot of the um, transcripts of interviews for the book I'm working on now, is that every single Chinese migrant person, business person that we've interviewed talked about um, run-ins with corrupt officials um, and incidents of crime. Um, many of the Chinese in South Africa are involved in, in some kind of retail or wholesale kind of business, but they're cash businesses basically, and they're seen as soft targets for criminals. Um, a, a lot of Chinese, when they first arrived in the country, didn't bank um, their money, so there were these rumors that started spreading that every Chinese person carries around a water cash and keeps kind of money under their mattresses, so to speak. Um, and so the Chinese started to be targeted by the thugs. But, um, but the Chinese, I imagine, in China um, are accustomed to a certain level of, of corruption and bribe paying. And so those practices have come with them. Um, I spoke to a friend um, just recently, and she said, Look, I mean, if a Chinese business person is working 24-7 and, you know, often 10, 12-hour days um, is, is, gets pulled over by a policeman, um, it, they just don't have time to deal with the whole ticketing process. So it's easier for them to just throw a 50 Rand note out and say, you know, thank you, officer, right, and, and be on their way. So those kinds of things that have happened, that do happen, kind of also spur kind of more stereotypes about Chinese willingness to pay bribes. Um, and so, if anything, with regard to corruption, and I imagine, yes, you know, to your question, but in addition to that, that Chinese are targeted by corrupt officials and by crooks constantly because of the cash and because of this kind of tendency to go ahead and pay the bribes, right? There's a, a really interesting kind of racial profiling that's taking place. So um, I'll share two quick incidents. Um, when we were doing this research in the Free State, I was driving this big red trooper that I used to have, and, um, and I was very aware of, of kind of the traffic laws. I had my daughter in the car and three other Asian women. <laughs> so we're driving around doing this research, and um, we got pulled over by the cops. And I knew I hadn't been speeding or that anything had gone wrong. Um, and he just pulled me over because he figured it was an easy bribe, right? And he was very surprised when he heard my accent and saw my American passport and, I, and, and, and you know, got a hint of my attitude. Because um, I said, excuse me, why you know, did, you, did you pull me over? And he couldn't even think of a good res response. And it wasn't like the first two months when I was in Nairobi and I didn't know what the laws were and, and you know, I, I was flustered. Um, but he clearly thought that he could get a quick bribe from me. Um, the other um, kind of episode, and it's not a single one, but every single time that I've flown into South Africa from China after a business trip, if I'm traveling alone, I get pulled over by customs. Regardless, I'm always pulled over because there's a suspicion that I'm going to be smuggling something, right? Because I look like I do. So there, there are these really interesting kind of stereotypes and rumors and myths that are starting to spread. There were a few other questions.
and so I'm of course interested in the migration perspective and I was curious um, based on what I've read about um, Chinese migrants in West Africa if there's if you've um, heard from your interviews with Chinese migrants there that is there um, is there a kind of a system of sponsorship where um, Chinese uh, employers sponsor uh, other Chinese from China and they pay their way and then you know the the, um, the employees kind of work until they've paid back their debt um, so how and then as a piggyback to that question have um, have the migration flows kind of increased with over the time that you were in South Africa? So when I first got to South Africa in 1995, people used to stare at me because there were so few people who looked like me walking around Johannesburg. Um, and in the course of that period is when the, the kind of Chinese migrant population exploded. South Africa has probably close to half of all the Chinese migrants on the continent. The numbers may have shifted recently because of um, the high numbers of Chinese workers that are being, um, uh, being um, uh, taken into Angola um, and the DRC. There are a lot of large construction projects, um, Sudan um, as well. There are a couple a uh, few other countries where you have large numbers of Chinese, but um, Nigeria as well. But South Africa probably has nearly half of all of the Chinese on the continent. Um, and interestingly, none of them are temporary workers. So they're all coming in um, as independent migrants or um, potentially with um, some of the big state-owned enterprises or banks, um, like China Construction Bank, um, the um, ICBC um, that partnered with Standard Bank, a lot of the kind of media. So South Africa probably has more professional Chinese um, and, and the kind of people that we in this country would, would term expats um, more than any other African country. Um, but in addition to that, um, there are probably more um, people who end up as traders operating these small shops um, or operating um, the wholesale um, retail, um, wholesale distribution shops. Um, there are over a dozen of these um, wholesale distribution centers um, scattered across Johannesburg um, and each of them probably has at least 100 to 200 um, of these shops, all of them kind of owned by individuals, right? So it's a huge number. Um, there is the kind of sponsorship that you're talking about, um, and that's kind of one of the processes that's taking place, but there are also increasing numbers of Chinese migration brokers or immigration brokers, and there's a whole range of these um, migration services, migration broker brokerages, um, just in terms of how legitimate or illegitimate they are. Um, I mean, the term that's used in the, in the literature of Chinese migration are snakeheads, that these Chinese um, mi migration brokers are kind of the head of the snake, right? And this is long snake that, that, that snakes into the country. Um, and in the Free State Province um, and in Lesotho, nearly all the Chinese are from 
two parts, two, um, two areas of Fujian. They're from Fuzhou or Fuqing, all of them. Um, Velcom has about 200 Chinese, and they're all from one town, one village, and you know they're all kind of related um, in one way or another, either by marriage or, or whatever. So there are these processes of chain migration. Um, sponsorship, not necessarily the way in which you describe it, but um, also invitations. You know, oh, business is good here. There are lots of opportunities. Come. Or I need some help in, in my shop. Come. Um, so I, I've, I've, we've talked to people who um, had taken out debt to pay for their passage um, and, to, and to kind of buy a business in, in um, South Africa. Most people who take out debt, it, it takes them two or, th two or three years on average to pay off before they can start showing any profit. Um, but there were also individuals who we interviewed who had educations. I mean, we talked to a former aeronautical engineer who was a professor at a prestigious university. And he makes more money selling women's lingerie in a stall in Johannesburg than he could make teaching at the university in China. And, you know, so for a lot of these people, it's about um, making a living and you know, providing for your children um, you know, kind of better benefits. And, and oftentimes, the children um, are the ones who will then you know, go off to university. So one of the families that we talked to were, had, had managed to send their kids to university here in the US. right? So once they learn English in South Africa, because they go to English medium schools, then they can kind of move on. your observations of that when you were living there and how maybe some of these Chinese factories might have played a role in that, or if they did? I, Pro Professor Edgar, who's sitting in your row, is, is, is actually the resident expert on, on Lesotho. Um, there, there is a tremendous amount of, of um, em emigration from Lesotho. Um, and, this is one of the issues that um, came up in, in the Lesotho uh, research is that in Lesotho, they're, they're much more um, strong, feelings are much stronger about Chinese um, in Lesotho than in South Africa. And in part, it's because Lesotho has historically, traditionally been a migrant sending country. It's never received immigrants from anywhere, right? I mean, this is a place that has kind of no resources. All their water goes to South Africa directly. Um, it's, it's one of the poorest countries on the continent. Um, and I, what's it, I don't know what the proportion is, but of men who leave Lesotho and work in the mines in South Africa, it's enormous. But traditionally, it's been the men who've left to go work in mines, and the women stayed at home. And, the textile factories employ almost entirely women. 
So it's, it's been able to kind of create an additional um, kind of income for many of those households, um, particularly in a period when um, a lot of the miners were losing their jobs. If I, there was uh, uh, some retraction. Um, and so my, my sense is, I mean, if, if, if one can draw those kinds of connections, is that you know, at least there was another job. Because um, at, at one stage, there were close to 60,000 jobs that were provided by the textile factories um, in Lesotho. It's yeah. down to about 30 now. Yeah, no, and this is one of the reasons why in Lesotho the government actually works at, and labor works in, in very close um, kind of um, collaboration with the, with the um, textile manufacturers association, which is predominantly Taiwanese. First of all, I want to thank you for your such a comprehensive uh, explain about everything you have about what made in China the influence of Southern, uh, South Africa. But my question is, this made in China thing, is that, are they basically imported from China or are they actually made locally just by Chinese, made Chinese-owned factories and maybe Chinese investment? Most of the um, things sold in stores um, is imported from China. Because this is made in China. And that's one of the, the reasons why the manufacturing sector, whether it's locally owned or Taiwanese owned or Chinese owned, is struggling. Because wages are higher, productivity is lower. Okay, so there are factories, they're struggling to make things, they're, you know, a lot of these um, Taiwanese and, and Chinese um, industrialists, if you want to call them that, or business owners, um, factory owners, are trying to make a small profit, you know, and trying to create jobs, but um, the, the, the pressure is always from the Chinese-made products. I mean, they're, it's almost impossible to Look, I mean, how can you compete, right? This is made in China. This is made in South Africa, supposedly made in South Africa, but the fabric itself is also imported, so that you have to factor in the cost of, of that on top of everything else. So basically, it's printed, right? Um, and then kind of the cut and, and stitched up in South Africa, but the fabric itself, the, the underlying fabric, is also imported, and that's one of the problems in, in South Africa is you don't have... Um, kind of enough of the, the whole um, uh, up, up and down market kind of um, capacity. But what I want to say is actually uh, the so-called creative destruction of the market is operating pretty severe in China. The Chinese government actually wants to push the government industry out of the land. They want them to, to send the industry to maybe Southeast Asia to Africa to anywhere else. So maybe you can, what do you say, what do you describe the situation might change pretty soon? It's possible, but you, you, you would still need to work on labor productivity. I yeah, mean, it, so it, that's a huge problem. For this FBI from China, probably African people should consider how to 
trap this FBI from China. Right. Instead, let the FBI go to the Southeast Asia. No, it's a good point. I also want to express my appreciation of the great presentation. I was in Ethiopia this summer, and many of the observations you made, I, I tried to understand the China in, in Ethiopia. And I saw resonance of it in, in Ethiopia. One, one point I, I noticed was, when I was a boy, I, I still remember how Japanese products were made fun of Japanese cars. We used to have songs uh -huh. them. It was made fun of cheap Japanese products. Yeah. And I saw lots of Chinese working on, on the train, Chinese mm -hmm. shops, and people made fun of how Chinese products are cheap. But they they went ahead and bought them for, for obvious reasons, and they were planted in, in the markets, including in small towns like in my, in my hometown. So, looking at, at the ambiguities you've seen, both among the individuals. By the way, one, one other thing I noticed was I didn't see any hatred of, 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 of Chinese people where, where there were there were xenophobic types jokes, but there wasn't there wasn't any 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 antipathy, strong antipathy. So, do you, did, you, did you research, were you hoping this might be worked out both at the ambiguities at the citizens level and at policies, capacity building and all other issues you raised? Or do you see it going towards uh, a point where it might end up in conflict or in other negative aspects? Um. I was in South Africa for a month, um, and I spent three weeks teaching um, down in Grahamstown at Rhodes, and I spent a, about a week, just over a week, in Johannesburg. Um, and on the one hand, while it was wonderful to be back in South Africa, which had been home for so long, it was really depressing in, in, in some ways. I mean, there's a lot going on in South Africa right now. Um, and, in terms of internal politics, local politics. Um, and labor continues to have such a strong hold on, on kind of national politics. Um, it's hard to see how they're going to resolve this in South Africa. Um, and they seem to be so busy fighting amongst themselves. Um, and there are all of these service delivery protests and um, Malema won't go away, and the media continues to cover him, so he, he's kind of even more prominent. Um, but they don't seem to be even asking the right kinds of questions. I mean, that's one of the things that's so frustrating about South Africa in particular. Um, I mean, in Lesotho, you have another set of concerns, right? I mean, you've got these textile factories that have been there for over 20 years, right? And they're creating jobs. But very few of the factories have actually moved the women up into management positions. They're still importing, if you will, um, supervisors and managers, um, maybe from China, maybe from other Asian countries. But they're not finding enough capacity within the, amongst their own workers to be able to kind of um, build that capacity internally. And after 20 years, you would hope to see um, more of that kind of 
at least down market kind of provision of buttons or zippers or you know kind of other products that they could then feed into the the, the Taiwanese owned factories there's only one example that I can think of where that's happened and so the the, the kind of um, process that you would like to see taking place in Africa um, that Deborah Brautigan, um writes about in her flying geese um, uh, and 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 the kind of thing that's happened actually in Mauritius, where you see local businesses kind of learning from and developing the capacity and taking over some of these businesses, is not happening in Lesotho. And you don't see that kind of thing happening in South Africa. And I'm not sure why that is, but it's a big problem. Um, so it's a little disconcerting. Um, having said that, in South Africa, you still don't see strong anti-Chinese sentiment. And I don't think you ever will. Um, the South Africans are too busy hating other black Africans that are in the country, unfortunately. So. Um, we have enough time for one last question. And, um, yes. Thank you. Oh, um, good to see you again. Um, it seems like there are these clusters, right, of these rural immigrants, the Chinese, the Pakistanis, mm. Bangladeshis, Somalis, and many of them have you know, elicited various uh, levels of violent reactions from South Africans and many recent events um, are leading to mobile. Um, have you contrasted this the Chinese um, cluster with the other uh, clusters, the Bangladeshis, the Pakistanis, speaking about perceptions and speaking about you know, South Africans, mm -hmm. you know, often uh, sometimes violently reacting to, to some of these mm. Um, one of the research projects that I worked on um, a few years ago was in the aftermath of the 2008 xenophobic violence um, and um, Atlantic Philanthropies um, funded a, a big um, research project looking at civil society responses um, to xenophobia. And um, I managed to kind of squeeze in a small project and it was very preliminary, but it was to look at why the Chinese and the, um, and the immigrants from, uh, from South Asia were not targeted, um, whereas the Somalis were, right? And other Africans were. Um, and look, without doing a lot more research, it would be hard to kind of definitively say. But I do think that the fact that um, most South Africans are familiar with people who look like me and, and, and people who look like they're Indian um, but might be Pakistani or Bangladeshi actually plays in their favor, right? It works in favor of those um, new migrant populations because there's this kind of um, confusion um, about who's new and who's old, but they look familiar, so you know we won't really bother with them. They don't bother us. It's it's kind of the historical presence um, of these communities. I think definitely plays a role, perhaps only subconsciously, um, you know. But then when you actually ask people, um, middle-aged Black South Africans, you know, ask them how do you feel about the Chinese? Oh, and they'll kind of wax. Uh, nostalgically about the Chinese shopkeeper who, 
you know, was in their township. And they're generally fond memories of the one or two Chinese people whom they knew growing up. And, and the Chinese shopkeeper provided them with credit, and they were very nice, and they learned how to speak Zulu or Sutu, and they were part of us, you know. And, and they remember, too, the days when, you know, during apartheid, when the Chinese person also was considered non-white, right? They were, they suffered um, under the same kinds of circumstances. Um, I don't think most people, unless you actually speak to them, most South Africans can't distinguish between a new Chinese or an old Chinese or a Korean American. Um, I, I remember trying to I scream up and down, say, but I'm not Chinese. I don't speak Chinese. I'm sorry. <laughs> but they would insist, you know, that you, but you all look alike, right? And I, I, I think I've come to realize that in, in Africa, Chinese, and, and, and actually, the same thing is true in Latin America, because in Spanish, it's chino, right, is a generic term for anyone from East Asia, right? So if you look like me, you're Chinese. So I, I have recently become Korean American again upon my return to this country. But for many years, <laughs> I was seen as Chinese. Um, and I think that that actually plays in their favor. I also think that um, things like um, economic competition, um, it plays a role. So there's no direct, um, most Chinese are, um, are involved in wholesale, right? So they provision black South African um, traders and hawkers, right? Um, they're not seen as direct competitors. They don't have shops in the townships. Um, and the Somalis do. And the Somalis do. And the Chinese also aren't going to go after South African women. Right? I mean, that, it, it's, it's played out in, in strange ways in China and in Africa, right? But that's one of the biggest things in South Africa is the Zimbabweans are all going after our women, right? I mean, and the women become kind of this commodity, and that's like the last straw. So anyway, that's... Thank you all very much. <laughs>